welcome to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. I'm Kira Fedition, Associate Digital Editor for Wound Care, and we're happy to have you listening today. Just as a reminder, this podcast is intended as an informational tool for medical professionals and is not intended to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Our guest today is Dr. Wendy Cole, Director of Wound Care Research at Kent State University College of Podiatric Medicine, and she'll be speaking with us about the importance of clinical research in wound care and best practices for creating and evaluating high-quality clinical trials. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cole. Thank you, Kira. Thanks for inviting me. I think this is going to be a, an excellent podcast and a very important topic to start a conversation around, so appreciate the invite to join you today. Absolutely. Could you just take a moment to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit about your experience and your current work in wound care? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I am Dr. Wendy Cole. I uh, reside in the Cleveland, Ohio area. I am the Director of Wound Care Research for Kent State University College of Podiatric Medicine, and I've uh, held that position for just about six years now. Um, I sort of had this windy road uh, that directed me to wound care and wound care research. I started, uh, I'm a podiatrist. I started in general podiatry practice, podiatric surgery, um, started to develop an interest for wound care when my local hospital opened a wound care center. I was just really enthralled with uh, all of the new technologies and new techniques that were coming into the space. So that's what piqued my interest about research and, and getting more involved in research. I initially started doing some case studies and some posters, and that developed into a more formal position uh, through wound care research and development and clinical research oversight and protocol development uh, that led to uh, the current role that I have at Kent State University. So I hope that with our conversation today, we could get some more interest around room care research and encourage folks that are uh, performing wound management to get more involved with clinical research as well. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, we'll go ahead and start with our broadest question for today. Why do you feel clinical research is so important to the field of wound management? So I think there's a lot to learn yet about wound management, which is really exciting to me. And I think that's what keeps me interested in wound care research and clinical research and wound care will provide practitioners a better understanding of this wound pathophysiology. Um, there's a multitude of factors that influence tissue repair and regeneration, and there's a lot of barriers to wound healing that we're still learning, and uh, we need to investigate either, even further. Additionally, wound care clinical trials have led to the commercialization of numerous therapeutics that can support wound healing. And now integrating these research findings into clinical practice is a great way of developing evidence-based care algorithms, which is really important for wound management, and it will help healthcare practitioners support better patient outcomes. Absolutely. And could you just walk us through a bit of what the various phases of clinical trials typically look like? Sure. So phase one clinical trials are the first stage in testing a new intervention, a new drug, a new device in, in human subjects. 
These groups sizes are typically small. The sample size is about 10 to 30 people or subjects. The goal is to identify a tolerable dose, uh, provide information on drug metabolism or device success and efficacy, test toxicity. So, you know, it just starts to learn about that intervention. They're not often controlled, which means there's a single group that we're investigating. Uh, there's no sham product or, or placebo or randomization. We'll talk a little bit about more about why randomization is, is important as we uh, move on the phases of trials. Phase two trials are, are larger. Usually they're about 30 to 100 subjects. The goal is to continue to gather preliminary information on efficacy and additional information on uh, safety and potential side effects too. So we're diving a little deeper into the intervention at this stage. The phase three trials are usually the large clinical trials, a uh, hundred or plus subjects you'll see, and it really helps to assess, again, more efficacy and safety data. Now, these phase three trials are usually when we see controls or randomization. So there's usually a placebo or a sham or a standard of care that we are comparing the investigational product to. And then phase four trials are typically post-market trials. So the product is already available on the market. It's obtained clearance by FDA or approval by the FDA. But now we're looking at it, you know, how are people using it in the field? Uh, and it, it's a long-term evaluation of these treatments in a larger patient population. Okay. And I know one of the phrases we see come up a lot when we're talking about trials, we talk about randomization. Can you tell us exactly what that means and why it's important in a clinical trial design? Yes. So when you hear that uh, a clinical trial was randomized, it usually means that there's at least two treatment groups. So there can be more, but at least two treatment groups. Uh, randomization is like a coin toss. A uh, subject entering into a clinical trial has the same likelihood of being selected for either of these groups, or we call them research arms, that are present in the trial. Now, why is randomization important, especially in these phase three trials, is it helps to avoid selection bias. And selection bias is when the investigator uh, might just put subjects into these groups uh, without any rhyme or reason, potentially, uh, and it's arbitrary, or maybe the investigator you know, likes patient X, so they want them to get the treatment, so they put them in the treatment arm, and we don't want that. We don't want that selection bias. So randomization avoids kind of takes the investigator out of the process and randomly assigns patients to these groups. It also helps to produce comparable treatment groups. Again, we don't want to put all patients with larger wounds into the placebo or control group, right? We want uh, to compare apples to apples. We want the groups in a randomized controlled trial to be equal. So the same basic 
profile, age, gender, wound size, comorbidity. We want both groups to be the same. And that's where randomization helps to develop these comparable treatment groups. Okay, great. Now there's obviously a lot that goes into a clinical study. Um, how would you advise a clinician to best determine what their actual outcome measures are that they're looking to study when they're performing a trial? Yeah, I think that's one of the first things that people entering into research need to decide. So you have to decide what are your primary and secondary outcome measures you're looking to study. So what's your question you're looking to answer? And when you're contemplating this, I recommend starting with the three Bs. So the first B is biology. Does the outcome you're looking to study reflect a clinically relevant change? So in wound care, oftentimes we're studying rate of wound area reduction or uh, how quickly a wound heals. Maybe we'll look at the decrease in severity of infection or decrease in wound pain, decrease in the frequency uh, of dressing change. So you want something tangible that you can study and something that we would be able to study uh, through biology. The second B would be the biostatistics. So is there a plausible and practical detectable difference between subject groups uh, that can be collected and, and can be measured? And these should be uh, more objective, something you know tangible, like I said, that we could collect data on and determine versus subjective. We don't want the investigators to say, we think that the wound looks better, or we think that the granulation tissue is more robust, it's better to have something very tangible. And the third B would be budget. So this is really important. A lot of people have these grand, grandiose ideas about clinical research, and they want to do a, a large trial. But when you kind of crunch the numbers, you have to really figure out what, what is your budget? What are the number of subjects you can really afford to enroll in a trial? So when you consider all of these factors, then you can best balance uh, what's the best type of trial for your project to give you the best results and get the best statistics and uh, within your best budget. So consider that when you're planning clinical trials. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, another thing I know we see a lot when we're, you know, reading some of these clinical studies is we see maybe an IRB number. Can you explain to the audience what an IRB is and what the steps are that must be taken for a study to get IRB approval? Yeah, that's an important concept to understand too. And I have people approach me because I do some medical writing as well, and, and they've performed these studies or collected data without IRB approval, and that's a big no-no, and, and you're not going to be able to get your data uh, published in a, a peer-reviewed journal if you don't go through your IRB. So an IRB stands for an Institutional Review Board. And the IRB's function is to really hold the responsibility of protecting the rights and welfare of human subjects in research. Again, very important. Um, in order for protocols to obtain IRB approval, there's a couple of things that you must illustrate in, in your protocol. First, you have to show that the risk to subjects are minimized. 
you know, that do no harm concept, obviously. Uh, risks are also reasonable in relation to the anticipated benefits of the therapy that you're investigating. Also that the selection of subjects is equitable, very important. Um, you can't just study, you know, a, a population that might be downtrodden or, you know, marginalized. You have to be very careful that your subject enrollment is equitable. Adequate provisions must exist to protect patient privacy. Oftentimes when patients enroll into a clinical trial, in fact, most times when patients enroll into a clinical trial, we no longer use their identifying health information. They are given a subject number. Uh, we don't use their name or, or oftentimes not their date of birth or any other identifying information because we wanna protect their privacy. Appropriate safeguards must be in place, again, for those vulnerable populations that we discussed. And then adequate provisions must be made for, for data monitoring and data mining, which is, is really important uh, as well. So uh, when you're developing your protocol, keep these things in mind because submission to the IRB and approval from the IRB is really kind of the first hurdle that you'll have to overcome. So be mindful of these things. Yeah, and just to jump off from there a little more too, what are some of the other common challenges you see clinicians running into when attempting to design a clinical trial or get a study off the ground? Yeah, I think they have to be realistic. You know, again, realistic expectations, that kind of goes back to those three Bs we talked about. Um, you know, make certain that the question you're trying to answer is something that you can collect data around. Talk to a lot of people in, in wound care trials and, you know, they they want to study, you know, that the the wound quality is is the tissue quality is better or that the scar tissue formation is less. It's very difficult to do that unless you uh, take histology of a, of a healed wound. And that's kind of not so practical in a patient that has already had a, a chronic non-healing wound that you've healed. And then now you're going to ask them, you know, to take a punch biopsy uh, and the tensile strength of the tissue that, it, that it's better is another question I see a lot of people wanting to answer. And, you know, we have to be realistic about can we gather that information on a large number of patients so that it's statistically significant. So think about how you're going to collect that data and if it's really appropriate and reasonable. And then again, the, the biostatistics is, are we able to answer that question? And is the data that we collect uh, statistically significant uh, or is it just an, an inference or an, an assumption? And I think we see a lot of that uh, today in, in people uh, looking to do clinical research and in that budget. I, I've worked with quite a few uh, sponsors and, and clinicians interested in, in getting into clinical trials. And it's not until, you know, you, you have this question and you write this protocol and then you figure out, gosh, you know, this is going to cost X amount of money. A lot of people kind of put it on the back burner or, or walk away. In fact, just happened to me last week. I was working with an industry partner. We've written a protocol uh, and then I developed the budget. And, and once the budget went before the board, they decided to, to press pause because they don't realize, unfortunately, even though research is extremely important, it, it can be expensive. So those are things that I see people get, get um, 
off track on. Uh, so it's good to have those conversations early in the process, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great points. Um, so now coming at it from a bit of a different angle for those who are looking to, you know, read research and maybe use some of the new research coming out to help inform their own practices. What are some of your best tips for evaluating existing wound care publications and manuscripts? I think this is a wonderful topic to discuss. So thanks for the question. You know, learning to evaluate what we read is super important and be critical thinker uh, in regard to new research and new studies is really uh, important. So some things to kind of keep in mind or questions to ask while you're reading uh, new manuscripts is, are the investigators trustworthy? Is there really any apparent conflicts of interest that might be present? And as researchers, we're required to uh, be open about our conflicts of interest. Um, was there adequate protection from bias? We talked about, you know, the importance of randomization. So it decreases bias. So investigators don't you know, cherry pick patients and put them in, in certain treatment groups. So, so look for that as well when you're reading uh, manuscripts and, and clinical trial data. Did the investigators ask a, a relevant question? I think that's super important. Is this going to be impactful? Was the sample size appropriate for the type of trials? We talked about the different phases of the trials and really what is considered the appropriate sample size for the trial. So were enough subjects enrolled based on the type of trial that was performed? Is there a meaningful outcome that is measured? Is it something that's going to also be impactful in your clinical practice? Are these findings appropriate for your patient population? Is it going to change the way that you practice? Is it something that's easy to implement into your clinical uh, flow? And, and would it really affect a, a large variety of the patients that you treat? And then also, uh, were the subjects followed for a reasonable amount of time? Uh, it's not appropriate really to just follow a patient for one or two weeks. You really don't know uh, what the drug or the intervention or the device is really going to do, or could it really benefit the wound just evaluating for a couple weeks? It needs to be uh, a more long-term trial. Typically, the trials in wound care, we monitor patients for at least 12 weeks or, or greater, depending on the data we're trying to collect. So that's an appropriate amount of time to really see if the intervention is going to affect whatever primary and secondary outcomes we're collecting uh, data on. Okay, wonderful. Um, do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Yeah, there's still so much that we don't know uh, about the chronicity uh, of wounds and the factors of the pathophysiology, the biomarkers. We're getting more astute, but there's still a lot of research that uh, needs to be done. You know, wound care research is really an important focus area and a, a large public health concern. Chronic wound management consumes considerable resources and as 
you know, billions of dollars in healthcare uh, monies globally. It's really a hot topic of international conversation and uh, consensus bureaus alike. So good research is, is still needed. To get started in research, really all you need is it to have an inquisitive mind. Uh, look to ask a question, you know, if you're turned on by a certain product, how is it going to affect your patients? And, you know, start to develop that question based on that. Evidence-based care and the process to generate this information continues to evolve and continues to grow. So I think that's really exciting. And I would like to encourage anyone listening to this podcast with an interest in wound care research to really take the leap and, and get involved. And they can feel free to reach out to me too. I'd be happy uh, to kind of point them in the right direction or answer any questions they may have. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Cole. I think you've given us some great points to think about. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That wraps up our discussion for today. But for more information on today's topic, we invite our listeners to explore all the resources available online at the Wound Care Learning Network. Thanks for joining us on Speaking of Wounds and enjoy the rest of your day.